Well, welcome to our discussion tonight, our, our, our study of, I've got a question. We started this last week, those that are tuning in now online, thank you for doing that. We started last week with a pretty big question, and the question last week was about the Trinity. And as you might imagine, after the, the Bible study, it generated quite a bit of, of questions, people coming up and talking to me, good questions, good discussion. People coming up and talking about this and that, and well, what about this, and that kind of thing. And, and so, with that in mind, uh, I wanted to revisit that for just a minute. I'm not going to reteach that lesson, I'm not going to do any of that, but I thought it would be, because there were so many questions, I thought I might spend about 60 seconds just trying to reaffirm what we talked about last week. We could easily do another lesson on the Trinity, it's such a big, complex uh, subject, but I want to spend about 60 seconds here going over a little bit of what we talked about last week. Uh, there's this diagram that I found that I think kind of summarizes this whole Trinity teaching as well as any I could imagine. And so just look at that diagram there on the screen. And I want you to walk through the diagram. Starting at the top, there's the Father going down to the right. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. But now look at the inside of that diagram. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Son is God. So sometimes if you're a visual learner, uh, something like that might help you to grasp what we talked about last week. Now, you might even want to jot that down, uh, kind of sketch that out on a, a notepad or something. But, but here's basically what we talked about last week, that God has always, and I underline always, God has always existed in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And three words that I will give you, I'm not sure that I gave you these three words last week, but uh, I want to give you three words to kind of summarize this diagram and the teaching of the Trinity. First is the word united, united, that in other words, there is one God, not three, there's one God in three persons. They are united. The second word that I would give you is the word distinct. That is, the persons of the Godhead are distinct from one another. They have different roles, of course. And here's a question that came up last week that I want to uh, try to emphasize. Their names reflect their particular roles, not their level of importance. That was something we talked about last week and was a question afterwards. You know, because kind of have in our mind, it's the Father's up here, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit as far as their level of importance. But their names simply reflect their roles, not their level of importance. Which brings me to the third word. The third word is equal. So the words are united, distinct, equal. They are equally God. They are equally powerful. Equal in, uh, in eternity. They are equal in holiness. They are equally God. I gave you this definition last week, and I'll, I'll stop with this. He said, uh, Dr. Scott Horrell said, One true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence, equal in glory, and distinct in relations. So when we begin to grasp the trifold nature of God, we marvel at how mighty and how majestic God is, more than we could ever fully imagine. So that was last week's discussion about the Trinity. Now tonight, it's not going to get any easier. 
Tonight we've got another big question. In fact, tonight we might call this the ultimate question. It is the question that may be settled in your heart because you're a Wednesday night Baptist and hopefully a Wednesday night Christian. This is a a question that's probably settled in your heart. It's probably not a question that you struggle with. But it is a question that though it may be settled in your heart, it may not be settled in the heart of your kids. Or it may not be settled in the heart of your grandkids. This is a question that bubbles up from time to time. And the reason it bubbles up is because your kids and your grandkids have been taught in school and other places about evolution. That there is not a God that created the heavens and the earth, but the world evolved. And that's the question we're going to talk about tonight. How did the universe come into being? Uh, Your kids and your grandkids, my kids, and eventually my grandkids once they get into school, uh, are going to hear the false doctrine of evolution. Uh, From grade school to the university campus, they've been indoctrinated with the unbiblical belief regarding the origins of our universe. Dr. James Merritt wrote a book called God, I've got a question, and most of what I'm sharing with you tonight really comes from his book, as well as another website, Answers in Genesis, and a few other resources I've used, but I'm going to quote him a few times tonight, so I wanted to make sure I give him credit. But Dr. Merritt tells the story in his book, in that chapter, uh, about evolution and creation. He said, he had a young man that came to his office. He said, in fact, before he came to his office, his mother came to me and said, would you talk to my son? He was a college-age son. And uh, he said, I know this young man. He said, I, I, I watched him from almost birth. I, I've known him almost all of his life. In fact, Dr. Merritt said, I baptized him. Seen him grow up in our church. He comes from a very strong Christian family. And his mother came to Dr. Merritt in tears and said, would you talk to my son? And he said, what's the problem? She said, I would rather he tell you. Eventually, the young man came in to see Dr. Merritt, and he sat there, and they talked about this and that for a while before they really got to the heart of the matter. The young man was struggling. He was struggling with lots of things, but at the base of it all, he finally peeled back layer after layer after layer, and he finally said to to Dr. Merritt, this is what, what I'm struggling with. With all the evidence for evolution, how can you believe in creation? A young man that grew up in church, a young man that had been baptized and been taught the Bible in Sunday school. And he he looked at his pastor and he said, with all the evidence for evolution, how can you believe in creation? I like what I read in uh, a website called Answers in Genesis. Uh, This is a good kind of introductory statement. Listen to what it says and I quote, says, creation versus evolution is not a battle of science. It's not a battle of science versus the Bible. It's not a battle of science versus faith. It's a battle between two starting points. God's Word and man's Word. Which starting point you choose will determine how you interpret the evidence. I've never heard it put quite like that. That the battle for evolution, the battle of evolution, really is about two starting points. God's Word or man's Word? And the question I would ask all of us is which one are you going to trust the most? Which one are you going to lean into the most? God's Word 
or man's word. Now, we come to the question then, so how did the universe begin? Of course, this is an incredibly complex question. And we're not going to be digging very deep tonight, obviously. We're going to try to address some of the, the issues that are at the heart of that question, but we're not going to be digging very deeply. But I'm really going to start with this incredibly complex question. I'm going to start with an incredibly simple answer. How did the universe come into being? Here's how it came into being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's some parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. Some parts of the Bible that we dig into and try to parse and and dig truth out of. But this is not one of those parts of the Bible that's difficult to understand. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isn't it interesting that the very first sentence of the Bible tells us how the universe came into being. The Bible clearly states that behind the entire creative order of our universe is the creative hand of God. There's no natural forces that exist on their own. Everything that exists in our world comes from a divine creator. Now, what we're going to be looking at tonight, I'll say just up front to you, what we're going to be talking about tonight for, uh, for some people is, is, is very hotly debated and and those who hold a creationist view, which I assume you do, those who hold a creationist view are often viewed as being ignorant and uninformed and uh, all that kind of thing. The media, school boards, universities, even our government uh, will not admit anything that includes God's involvement in creation, by and large. So I believe that the proper starting point is God's Word rather than man's Word. And I'll tell you why. This is, again, so simple. But the reason I believe we ought to start with God's Word rather than man's Word is because God is the only one who was there when it happened. If you start with man's Word, give me the name of any person who was there when it happened. And of course you can't. And that's one of the fallacies of evolution. Man speaks with great confidence about evolution, yet none of them were there. And it's all simply a theory. But it's spoken as if it's fact. And so, with that in mind, before we get too far into this, I want to give you a confession that might surprise you a little bit, but listen carefully. I want to begin with this confession. I cannot prove creation... Nor can I disprove evolution. Now, now listen to the whole thing, okay? I cannot prove creation, nor can I disprove evolution, at least not scientifically. Neither the origin of the universe nor the origin of life can be directly tested and observed. Both creation and evolution, watch this, both creation and evolution require a level of faith. Because if you go with creation, then you you take the Word of God. If you go with evolution, you take the Word of man. But they both require a level of faith. Dr. Merritt says, all you can do is examine the evidence and objectively as possible, decide where the evidence leads or where the evidence points. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take our Bibles and we're going to just talk through some things and think through some things for the next few minutes. 
I hope you've got an outline. They're up front and in the back if you didn't get one. It's just something to take notes on. I don't have a lot of information there for you. I've just got some major headings to give you an opportunity to take some notes. I want to begin by defining evolution. Because when someone says evolution, that evolution has occurred, they sometimes may not mean what you think they mean. Evolution really has two different meanings. Um, Sometimes the word refers to what we will call microevolution. You put that on your notes, I think it's there. Microevolution. Let me describe microevolution to you. It's the change that takes place within certain plants or animals or people. It's, it's, it is uh, a change that takes place over time, yes. It's a, it's a change that takes place over time, but it's never species altering. It never alters the species. This kind of evolution is compatible with Genesis. In fact, if you take your Bibles, I want you to find Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Now I want you to notice this repeat, this word that's repeated. The word kind or kinds. Verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds. And all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. Six times you see that word in those two verses. According to their kinds. What does that mean? It means that God has created a group of animals or a animal. And that animal may change. That animal may grow or, or, or become slightly different over the years. But it's never going to cease to be that kind of an animal. Put this on your notes. This is sometimes called horizontal change. Horizontal change. In other words, there are sometimes variations within a kind, but they stay the same. For example, let's take a bird. A, a bird may, a uh, particular uh, species of bird, the, he may have a beak that is shorter or longer given over time. That, that the beak of the bird may grow or, or shorten given over a period of a hundred years or a thousand years or whatever. Uh, so that bird may change slightly through time, but it's still a bird. The species hasn't changed. Or let's say a dog. I used to have a German Shepherd dog. I don't know when they came into existence, but I doubt, I don't know this, I'm just guessing, I doubt that they had German Shepherds in the biblical times. So dogs emerge, right? They change. There's variations of dogs. Anybody got a Chihuahua? You do? Okay. A Chihuahua is quite different than a Doberman Pinscher. Though they're similar, right? Because they're both kind of mean and, you know, attack dogs and all that kind of thing. Or, I shouldn't say that. Don't get mad at me. But, but that's my point. There are variations, but they're still a dog. Uh, uh, you could keep going and going, but uh, 
animals, plants, people, they may evolve, there's the key word, they may evolve, they may change in uh, slightly, there may be variations over time. Somebody, uh, Rob, what's the kind of dog that you've got? I was thinking about that today. What kind of dog do you have? A golden doodle? Is that what he said? Golden doodle? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they didn't have those in the Bible. You know, because of the process of breeding, there's been these variations of dogs. But it's still a dog. The species hasn't changed. So sometimes people talk about how things have changed over the years. They're talking really about microevolution or horizontal change. The other type of evolution is called macroevolution. This is the theory that made Charles Darwin famous. Uh, Macroevolution. Dr. Merritt said, Darwin suggested that living matter evolved from non-matter through a random process over time, and that all animals, plants, and people evolved from a common ancestor through a random process of natural selection that ensures the survival of the fittest. This is, put this on your notes, this is sometimes called vertical change. Vertical change. When one kind of living thing is changed into another kind of living thing. In this situation, the species does change. Or at least that's the theory. Alright, that's the theory. I should say this is a theory. In other words, this is how they would, the evolutionists would explain how we went from molecules to a man. Uh, that, that there was this macroevolution. There was this change from species. Not just a variation of the same species, but actually a change from one species, one type, to another type. So we went from fish to a philosopher. We, we, we went from goo to you. You know, there was this, this absolute over-process of time. There was this absolute change from one species to another. Now, that's what we're talking about tonight in evolution. And that's what they're teaching in your grade schools. That's what they're teaching in middle school and in high school. That's what they're teaching in universities. Uh, this is what you'll see a, a lot of the media buying into. The idea of evolution. That given enough time, our world evolved from goo to you. Now, um, again, I know we're just surface level on this thing. There's so much we could talk about. But, but I want to talk about two of the major problems with, with evolution. Two of the major problems. First of all, the, one, the first one is listed there on your notes. You can fill in the blank. The fossil flaw. The fossil flaw. In other words, evolutionists would say, again, everything descended from a common ancestor. There was a common you know, whatever, and, and eventually things began to grow and change and all that kind of thing, and, and, and everything it descended from this common um, ancestor. If that was true, you would expect that in the ancient fossils there would be thousands and thousands of intermediate forms of creatures that were part this and part that. And, uh, for example, if something indeed changed from a fish to a bird, you'd expect somewhere along the way there would be some fossils of a creature that was half fish and half bird. Problem is, evolutionists have never, ever, ever found even one fossil like that. Charles Darwin even said, I don't understand why we haven't found any fossils. This is not a direct quote. I don't understand how we haven't found any fossils, but hopefully, eventually, we will. So the fossil flaw 
is that, uh, you know, what they say has happened, there's no fossils to really support what they say has happened. That is, a change from species to species. Then the second problem with evolution, second major problem, is uh, the dead life dilemma. Dead slash uh, life dilemma. In other words, this is the idea that, that life evolved from non-life. There's no scientific evidence at all that life ever did or ever can evolve from non-living matter. I mean, it's just astounding when you start reading this stuff. What some people believe. Folks, this is just my personal opinion. I believe, and I'm not trying to make fun of evolutionists. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. I, I, this is a conviction of mine. I think it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, this idea of how things came to be that, that life came from non-life. That's, that's, a, that's an astounding thing to, to even suggest. Somebody said this, and I wrote it down, said, During all recorded human history, there has never been a substantiated case of a living thing being produced from anything other than another living thing. Or to say it, if I could say it to you this way, where did life come from? Just, just think about life in general. Whether you're talking about the life of a plant, the life of an animal, the life of a person. How do you explain the arrival of life? Darwin tried to explain the, by the survival of the fittest. He, you know, he says there's this process of elimination and the survival of the fittest. And that, that's how the life you know, kind of progressed. But my question is, how did life start? Take your Bibles real quick. This is a beautiful passage. Genesis, of course. Um, and you can give me a minute to find it because I, I just this wasn't in my notes. I just wanted to read it to you. Um, it's in chapter 1 or chapter 2. You all help me find it where God creates man and he breathes into him. Chat, what is it? I can't hear you, I'm sorry. All right. Uh, 2-7, I think she said. Yeah, yeah, 2-7 is the one I'm looking for. Uh, there, in one twenty-seven, it does talk about God creating man, but then there's another account of it in 2-7. And, and here's what it says. This, this is a beautiful uh, description. Where did life come from? 2-7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. That's where life came from. From the Lord God who is living, who is eternal. And he formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into, into that dust and all of a sudden the dust began to live. The dust was filled with life. I mean, that, that, is a, that is a huge question. Where did, how do you explain the arrival of life? Evolutionists would say, well, somehow there was 
non-life that over eons of time became life. It evolved from non-life to life. Again, you either accept the Word of man or you accept the Word of God. And I really believe that the one who was there, the one who created life, is the one I want to listen to. Now, so we talked about what's the problems with evolution, and those are just two. Of course, you could talk about a whole lot more, but but just the the the, the fossil flaw and the dead slash life dilemma, and so that brings me to a, a quick question: If evolution is such a deficient theory, and it is only a theory, by the way, if evolution is such a deficient theory, why do so many people de- deliberately defend it? came across a couple of quotes that I want to read you. Again, here's the question. If evolution is such a deficient theory, and I believe it is, uh, why are so many scientists, educators, government leaders, why, why do so many people defend it if it is such a deficient theory? George Wald was a former professor of biology at Harvard University. He was the 1967 Nobel Peace Prize winner in physiology. And this was what he said one time. And this is a quote. It's a little bit long, but listen to what he said. He said, there are only two possibilities on how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third option. Spontaneous generation, the belief that life comes from non-living matter, was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That just leaves us with the only other possibility that life arose as the cre- from the creative act of God. Now listen to what he says. But I will not accept that philosophy because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation leading to evolution. At least I appreciate his honesty. In case you didn't get all that, here's what he basically said. He said, I know that the theory of evolution and this idea of life coming from non-life is a farce. But I don't want to believe in God. So I'm going to believe in this. Another Harvard teacher, Harvard biologist Richard Lewontin, I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, said this about evolution and creation. He says, and I quote, we cannot allow a divine foot door. We absolutely cannot allow a divine foot in the door. As he was trying to explain the the absolute absurdity of evolution theory, he said, but we can't allow a divine foot in the door. We can't We can't even leave the possibility that there really is a God. So the question that I'm raising, they've answered pretty well, but the question, if evolution is such a deficient theory, why do so many people so vigorously defend it? And sometimes, as I've just read for you, sometimes when they know that it's wrong. Go with me to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, here's what we read. 
Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. They exchanged the truth. Now, to stay true to the context, he's talking about in verse 24, that God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then he says, again, to stay true to the context, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator. Uh, So he's talking to a specific group of people. He's not talking about evolutionists there. But I think the verse certainly applies. They're exchanging... Look up here for a moment. They're exchanging the truth of God's Word for a lie. And worshiping the created things, that becomes their God, their theory of evolution. Worshiping created things rather than the Creator. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just trying to tell you what I've, what I've learned as I've read. And probably you would agree with this. That one of the key factors in this whole debate of creation versus evolution. Is that you will find that a majority, not all. But a majority of the scientists who believe in evolution are also atheists or agnostics. That probably doesn't surprise you. But a majority of the ones who really are promoting and pushing evolution are atheists. Or agnostics. Now there are some who hold to a theistic view of evolution. And let me just give you a quick definition. Because you may see that, read that and wonder. Well, well that sounds better. What, what's a theistic evolutionist? A theistic ev- or theistic evolution is the idea that God uses the process of evolution to create the world. That a theistic evolutionist would say. Well yes, there is evolution. But God was the one behind it. Theism, God. God was the one behind the whole process of evolution. That's theistic evolution. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, and God started the process of evolution. The Bible says in Genesis 1.1, and God created the heavens and the earth. And then there are others who have a deistic view of God and evolution. A deist is somebody that says, well, God does exist, uh, but he's not involved in the world. And so all these things that have happened, have happened because God took his hands off of it. And it just evolved because of that. Um, But the, the, the whole point is this. Many of the people who really are promoting evolution are those people who really in their own lives and in their own hearts have determined there is no God. And they're trying as best they can to prove their point. Uh, by the way, I, I didn't know this until I was doing some study for tonight, that Darwin, Charles Darwin, once identified himself as a Christian. Do you know that? I, I didn't know that. Uh, but he once identified himself as a Christian, but because of some tragedies that took place in his life, he later renounced his Christian faith, and he renounced the existence of God. And th- that led him down the path. Of, of him, you know, doing what he did. Now, I want you to take your Bibles in the last few minutes. I want you to go with me to Psalm 14. Um, and we've looked at this recently, but I want you to see it again. Psalm 14. 
Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now the reason I wanted you to turn there rather than have me just quote it to you is one of the reasons is because I want you to see that I'm just not being mean by calling these people fools. The Bible actually says, and it also says it in 53, Psalm 53 verse 1, essentially the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, please understand what we mean by, what the Bible means here by saying the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Foolishness here in this context does not mean lack of intelligence. Foolishness means an inability to accept the knowledge. An unwillingness to accept the knowledge. Uh, many of the scientists are brilliant and have an IQ far beyond anything that I could ever imagine. They are brilliant intellectually. Uh, many of the evolutionists uh, are brilliant ev- uh, in, in, their, in their own mind, in their own training, in their own thinking. And yet, even with, uh, with a PhD and numerous degrees and, and uh, brilliance, um, they can declare in their hearts... I refuse to accept that knowledge. I refuse to admit that truth. And the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, I want you to go, um, while you're there, to Psalm, while you're in Psalms, I want you to go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Uh, and it's interesting for me, uh, in my personal quiet time right now, I'm going through the Psalms and I'm doing some writing on, on each of the Psalms. And today I came to Psalm 19, which was very good timing. I mean, I, I couldn't have planned it that way. I was preparing this lesson uh, on creation and, and today's Psalm was Psalm 19. Uh, it is quickly becoming one of my favorite Psalms. Uh, and so let's just read it. Psalm one, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 19, the first six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The Bible here makes no bones about it that the earth is divinely designed, that the heavens declare, they proclaim the reality of God's divine design, that there is a divine designer. Uh, and in fact, I, I noted today in my writing as I was studying this psalm, in, in the first four verses, I want you to see this. In the first four verses, every verse talks about communication in some form. That the creation is communicating. That, the, that God, watch this, God is not silent. God is speaking through creation. Every verse, verse 1, the heavens declare, that talks about communication. The heavens declare the glory of God glory of God. The skies proclaim another word of creation, the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. 
communication. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice, communication, is not heard. Their voice, communication, goes out into all the earth. And their words, communication, to the ends of the, of the world. Here's what this text is saying. God is speaking, but not everybody is listening. I mean, this is the question of all questions. Is this planet just an accident? How did our universe come into being? In this world we live in, is it just all part of blind evolutionary chance? Or is there a divine design? And the psalmist David wrote, heavens are declaring every day the glory of its creator. That doesn't mean everybody's listening. God's always speaking. That's why it says, and we don't have time to look at it, that's why it says in Romans chapter 1, those people who turn away from God are without excuse because God has spoken clearly through creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, or verse 21. We don't have time to read it. And so let me close with this illustration. If you came into the kitchen, if you went into the kitchen tonight, and the alphabet cereal was spilled on the table, and it spelled out your name and address, would you think that the cat knocked over the cereal box? I don't know who, who originally said that, but that got me to thinking. So if you walk into your house and you see on the kitchen table the alphabet cereal spilled over and it's got your name and address spelled out, did you think the cat did that? No. You'd never imagine that. What does the evidence suggest? The evidence suggests somebody intelligent spelled that out. And when you honestly view the overwhelming evidence of creation, and you don't even have to be a scientist to do that, David said, just go outside and look. Just look up in the sky. Just look at this world that God created. Just get up in the morning and watch the sun come up. And tell me how that happened. You either have to accept the word of man or you have to accept the word from God. Genesis 1.1 is straightforward. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you can believe that first sentence, you can believe the rest of the Bible. You get to the New Testament, you read about all these miracles. That's not a problem for the God who can create the heavens and the earth. But, if you don't believe that first sentence, you can doubt the rest of the Bible. Everything flows from this truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God reveals Himself to us. He reveals Himself to us as Creator. And by the way, if you keep reading in Psalm 19, not only does He reveal Himself through creation, but it also says in verses 7-11, through 11, He reveals Himself through His Word. He reveals Himself through His Word. This God who created the heavens 
wants to speak to you through his word. Let's pray about that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are our Lord and our God. May our faith rest on the firm foundation that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We recognize, Father, that there are others who would, who would debate that, who would disbelieve that, who would, who would mock that. But may it be a bedrock commitment in our hearts and in our lives. We choose tonight to believe the Word of God rather than the Word of man. You are eternal. You are the mighty creator of our world. And thank you for the promise you can recreate us. Keep shaping us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. It's in His name I pray. Amen. All right, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you.